Please take a seat. Let me pray for us and ask uh, God to help us as we explore his word together. Father God, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you for your word, the Bible. We pray now that as uh, we come before it, uh, to hear it, that it will challenge us and it will encourage us. And Father, we pray that in reading your word we will see your living word, your son, and we will trust him. Amen. Now we're going to make two promises uh, at the start of this sermon. Two groundbreaking things are going to happen in this sermon. The first, straight away, uh, on the back of the notice sheet you'll see an outline. I've finally managed uh, to get round to putting one of these together. So on the back of the notice sheet is an outline of where we'll be heading over the next little while in John 5. And the second is, I promise not to mention Australia for uh, the next little while. We'll see how we go with that one. So, yeah, it's worth having that outline open. We're going to be looking at John 5 as we continue this series that we've been in now for three weeks exploring uh, these early chapters of John as different people come close to Jesus, as different people meet him. And I think uh, one of the things that struck me is that as each one does, their life is totally changed by that meeting. And I think that's, that's true always, isn't it? That when a person meets Jesus, when a person gets to know Jesus, their life is never the same. Uh, Let me give the example of Napoleon uh, speaking of Jesus. Uh, The great leader Napoleon said this, Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare or explain it. Here everything is extraordinary. And that's the Jesus we're coming close to through these chapters. He is an extraordinary figure, a figure that you can't come close to, you can't meet and be left unchanged. And uh, you might remember in the first week as we started to look at uh, John 3, we we sort of reflected what it would actually be like to meet Jesus, to, to be one of these people that we're seeing in these chapters come close and actually get to meet and speak with him. Well, keep that in your mind. I want you to have three questions in your mind as we look at John 5. What would it actually be like to do that? If, if, that was, if it's you in John 5, what would it be like to meet Jesus? Secondly, who do you think you'd be meeting if you met Jesus? Who do you think you'd be meeting And thirdly, what would you say to him or what would you ask of him? They're the three things that I want you to have in your mind as we look at John 5. And if you haven't got it open, it's page 1068 in the Church Bibles and it's worth having open as we look at it. Now by this stage in John's Gospel, uh, it's some time after uh, the account that we had in John 4 of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman in the desert. You may remember in John 4 he'd left Jerusalem to get away from the crowds and he'd headed uh, way off to Galilee and on the way had gone via Samaria. By now he is back in Jerusalem, verse 1 tells us, and he is there for a Jewish festival and it's the Sabbath day. Now I, I think uh, if you look uh, at verse 1, it's interesting the Bible does this for us again and again in the Gospels. It just loads the early part of a chapter with historical pointers. There's all sorts of little things here that are telling us that these interactions with Jesus, these these conversations he's having, they're real ones. They happened at a point of time and in a specific place. We're told not only 
that it was in Jerusalem, we're told exactly where it took place. It happened at a pool near the Sheep Gate. Now, uh, if you're like me, when, when you read that, that means absolutely nothing to me. Uh, I don't know where the Sheep Gate is in Jerusalem or where the pool uh, was that was near this Sheep Gate. But uh, elsewhere in the, uh, in the Bible, in Nehemiah, this pool is referred to and excavations of this part of the city have revealed a pool uh, just like the one described in verse 2. You see it there? Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. That's what they found, just like that. And again, as I said, it's important that it's, it's really grounding this in history and in a specific place. Now at this point in history, this pool had become a focal point for a large group of people in desperate need. Have a look at verse 3. The blind, the lame, the paralysed, a huge crowd had gathered there. And they gathered there because tradition had it that this pool had healing powers. Or at least it did when an angel of the Lord would stir up the water. That's, that's what the tradition held would happen. And when that happened, the first person in the pool, after it had been stirred up, would be healed. That was what they thought. And so that's why this huge crowd is there. I don't know about you, but I think it's a horrible scene. Here you've got around this pool this massive crowd of desperate people. You imagine the crush when that moment happened, when whatever it was disturbed this water, because we're not told in the passage that it was the angel of the Lord. That's just the tradition holds that. That moment when the, the water is, is disturbed and you have this huge rush of people heading towards the water, carried by family and friends, desperate to be first in. Well, among this throng of people in desperate need, the passage zooms in on one man, verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus' focus turns to him, a paralysed man, very much in need and with no special reason why he, rather than the others, should be helped. Now think about those three descriptions. Very much in need, paralysed and no special reason why he should be helped. So I was thinking about that this week. It reminded me that again and again the Bible describes our world like that. Our world is made up of people, ourselves included, who have a very real need. And it's not paralysis necessarily for many of us like this man, although the paralysis the Bible talks about is a paralysis that comes because of sin and death. And we have no special reason why we should be helped. We asked at the start what it would be like to meet Jesus if, if we met Jesus rather than this man. Well, it would be just the same. For as long as we have or had cut ourselves off from God, that's how long we were paralysed. And as long as we have or had decided that we didn't need God, that we could live without him, that's how long we had no special claim on his help. And so this scene in John 5 of the pool is a picture of our world. And to be honest, I think if it is a picture of our world, a great deal of people would want to ask God why our world is like this, why there is such great need in our world, such brokenness, why is there sickness? Why do things like the, the abduction of, of this girl Madeline McCann, why do we live in a world where things like that happen? What have we done to deserve it? If we were to meet Jesus, I imagine that is a question that we may want to ask. 
Well, given this, let's see how this meeting plays out. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Jesus picks this man out for no special reason. He knows his situation, but uh, more than the verse 6 would let on, it's, it says there that he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. It's like he's been doing research, walking around, what's, what's this guy's story? But the actual Greek word it talks about pre-knowledge. He knew the man's situation when he arrived at the pool and he offers the man the very thing he needs. Do you wish to be whole, he says. Do you wish to be well? I think the man's response is very similar to the responses we've seen from Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. He points to the obvious problem with Jesus' suggestion. We saw it with Nicodemus when he was told that he would need to be born again. Nicodemus says, well, that's ridiculous. I can't go back into my mother's womb. We saw it last week when Jesus offered the, uh, the Samaritan woman water. She said, well, you don't even have a bucket. And here is this man. He knows the only way he can be whole is to be first in the pool. And he has no one to help him. He's so desperate he remains there even though he has no helper. And so to be asked if he wants to be well seems to the man anyway to be a stupid question. Of course I want to be well. Why do you think I'm here? And then it happens. This man who's been paralysed for 38 years has his life changed with just two words from Jesus. Get up. Rise up, says Jesus. They're words of command, powerful words. Get up. Take your mat and walk. Jesus knew what the problem was. But I guess any of us could have got to that point with this man if we'd we'd asked enough questions. He was willing to help and I guess we'd want to help as well if we were there to, to sort of carry him down to the pool. But only Jesus could help. And with his word, 38 years are reversed. Turn backwards. Get up, he said to the man. And the man is cured in an instant. He picks up his mat and he walks. Amazing. Now you think the the response to this event, this amazing healing just with the powerful word of Jesus would be obvious. They'd They'd be celebrating this amazing miracle. They'd be rejoicing with this man that he had his his feet back, he could walk. But uh, the thing that struck me as I looked at this passage is the response to Jesus' word and the implications of Jesus' word are not as we would expect. In fact, as I I looked at this uh, chapter, chapter 5, the the verses that follow this incident, the 30 verses that come after it, read more like a series of accusations against Jesus because of what he has said. They're almost like a court case. Well, what's the charge? Well, at first, the first charge that comes up in the passage is it's a misdemeanour, isn't it? The sort of uh, charge that would be settled by uh, the smallest, pettiest court in the land. Although those who bring it seem to think it's a lot more serious than that. Have a look at verse 9. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the, Lord, the law forbids you to carry your mat. It's a bit like Paul was saying before, it's just completely detached from reality. Here is this man, 38 years, unable to move, 38 years paralysed, and now he's walking around. And they're saying, you shouldn't carry your mat. It's ridiculous. You're kidding. You see where religion comes in and uh, totally misses the point. 
But the man is accused of breaking the Sabbath and you see what he does? He says, oh, it's not me. I, I'm not to blame for this. Uh, he told me to do it. It's that guy. He said to, to carry my mat and walk. And they ask him who and at first he doesn't know. And again, that seems a bit baffling, doesn't it? This man has just healed you of this thing you've had for 38 years and you didn't even catch his name. Later we're told in verse 14 that he, he does meet Jesus again. And so he goes back to tell him, it was Jesus, it's his fault, he told me to do it. And so all of a sudden Jesus is dragged into the court case. The charge breaking the Sabbath. Have a look at verse 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus responds to the charge in verse 17. My father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. And at first he seems to be doing what the man did when he was accused of bringing someone else into blame. It's, it's the father's fault, not mine. But have a look closely. He's doing it for a very different reason. You see, over time the Jewish authorities had developed this intricate system around the Sabbath, the, the sort of the work that you were allowed to do and the work you weren't allowed to do. And they'd come up with some 39 categories of work that were not allowed on the Sabbath, including carrying your mat. You could, you could carry your mat in your own house, but uh, if you wanted to go from one place to another, one home to another, you, you couldn't do that. And so this man has broken the law. But they also knew, as Jesus argues in verse 17, that things were a little different when it came to God. You see, while God rested on the Sabbath, he was still at work. I mean, it's not as if God uh, sort of worked in the world for six days and then just sort of let it spin around, hoping it wouldn't spin out of control for 24 hours before he clocked back in, uh, back into work. No, he was always at work. Great provision he gives this world. The fact that the sun rose this morning is because God is at work. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, I have every right to work on the Sabbath. It's a huge claim. Do you see what he's saying? God the Father works on the Sabbath and so do I because I am God the Son. Now for this defence to be valid, he needs to be saying that the things that are true of God, that you're able to work on the Sabbath, and God was able to work on the Sabbath because the, the Jewish rulers decided that, well, it's not like he's, if he carried his mat, he wouldn't carry it from one domain to another because the whole world's his. So he can do what he wants in his house. Jesus needs to be saying the same about himself. The whole world is mine, for I created it. And in verse 18, the Jewish authorities grasp straight away what he is saying. You see, Sabbath breaking is one thing, but in defending himself against that charge, Jesus now has to answer a much bigger one. He is calling himself God. And that's no misdemeanour. It's a whole new court case, a capital one, one deserving death. And so we come to Jesus' defence in verses 17 to 23. He's made this huge claim with huge implications. I mean, if it's true, it answers our second question at the start, doesn't it? Who do you think you'd meet if you met Jesus? Well, if he's right, you'd be meeting God. Well, what's his defence for such a claim? Well, put simply, he says, I do my Father's will. If you put me in the dock, as you're doing now, he says to the Jewish authorities, then you are putting God himself in the dock. If you assess my words and my works, then you are assessing the very words and works of God. 
And in verse 19 to 22 he gives a three-part defence. Firstly, he explains how he is equal with God. Secondly, why he does the Father's will. And thirdly, what is that will, what he does. Firstly, how he is equal with God. Have a look at verse 19. Now, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is declared as God. The very first verse of John's Gospel, speaking of Jesus as the Word of God, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And near the end of the Gospel, the same thing happens when the risen Jesus stands before his disciple Thomas. Thomas says of Jesus, You are my Lord and my God. Again and again, the Gospel declares this truth. The interesting thing in this verse, verse 19, is this equality with God is expressed by his obedience to his Father. Jesus is equal with God and yet he is subordinate and dependent on his Father. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. While he is rightfully called God, And while he can rightfully claim to do what his father does, he knows that he operates in submission to his father because he's the son. They're not rivals. The son follows the lead of his father. Jesus is saying to us, I am God. I am equal with God the Father. But status is not the same as role. It's really important to, to grasp what Jesus is saying here. I am God, as much as the Father is God, but we have very different roles and I obey the Father. Can I just throw in briefly at this point that I think this verse is hugely important for how we understand God and therefore how we understand ourselves in the image of God. It has huge implications for the roles of men and women in relationship to each other, especially in the church. What it's saying here is it's possibly to be completely equal with someone, completely equal, and yet not have the same role. And I think that's a, that's a huge stumbling point on issues of uh, the role of men and women in a church. We get to the point where we think the only way you can be equal with someone is if you do exactly the same thing, you have the same role. But the Bible is saying something very different here about the father and the son and I think it has implications for us as well. So that's how he is equal with God. Next in verse 20, why he does the father's will. It's quite simple. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. This explains why he does what his Father does, why he obeys his Father. He is loved by his Father and absolutely everything the Father is about, everything that he is doing in this world, he has shown to the Son. The Father demonstrates his love for his Son in that way. He reveals totally his will. And the Son demonstrates his love for the Father in obeying that will, even to the cross. And so Jesus' defence so far, I am the Son of God. I and the Father are at one in our work. I do his will because he loves me and I love him. And what does he do? Well, verse 21 and 22, Jesus has two huge roles in this world. Verse 21, I am here to bring the dead to life. That's what I'm here to do. Now, raising the dead was God's domain alone, something that only God could do. 2 Kings 5 verse 7 talks about that. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, can give life, do you see it there in verse 21, to whoever he pleases. 
total freedom, total power. Jesus does the Father's will and his will is that the dead be raised. And secondly, verse 22, his second role, I am here to carry out all judgment. Jesus will raise everyone from the dead and he will raise them for judgment. In verse 23 we're told why. Because God the Father wants everyone to honour the Son. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come as an envoy for, for the true king of this world. He is the king. And as king he deserves our honour. And as king he has every right to judge. Who would we meet if we came close to Jesus? Well, as Thomas said, we would meet our king and our God. That's who we'd meet. Now, there's big implications in that, isn't there? And we'll come to that in a moment, but it's important to see that Jesus gives witnesses, cites witnesses for this defence. See them in verse 31 to 40, he gives us three. In verse 33 to 35 he says, well, there's John the Baptist, for example, this, this character that, uh, that they'd all flocked to, the Jewish authorities had, had loved John the Baptist and the things he was saying. Jesus says his entire purpose was to point to me. That's what he does in John 1:29. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is him, he says. The purpose of John the Baptist was that all might believe Jesus. The second witness, verse 36. Jesus works. The very thing he has done for this man at the pool shouts that God is at work. In fact, the reason the miracles are recorded for us is that we might believe. That's what John 20 verse 31 says. And the third witness is the Father himself. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Father testifies that the Son is God, that he is coming And yet, even though uh, Jesus says the Jewish rulers studied their Bibles diligently, they knew it back to front, the heads were always in it, and yet they had never heard God's word. And even though they knew to look for the Son, even though he's now standing before them, they've never seen him. They're blind. They have rejected out of hand God's testimony about his own Son. And so we have in John 5 Jesus on trial in the court of human opinion. What do we make of him? Are we with the Jewish rulers who Jesus says in in verses 41 to 44 have got all their categories mixed up? You know, they reject God but they're happy to accept uh, the testimony of anybody who comes in their own name, anybody who would come and make a claim. Jesus says, how can you believe me if you only accept each other's words and not the word of God? Or are we a bit like the man at the pool, you know, this picture of our world? What does he make of Jesus? Well, again, I think like our world, he assumes God is here to fix the mess. Make me well. End poverty, right wrong, stop crime. That's God's job. Why isn't he doing that? If Jesus is who he claims to be, why isn't he fixing it? What have we done to deserve this? Well, have a look at verse 14. Come back to this man at the pool for a moment. Later Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What had he done to deserve it? 
Well, in this man's case, Jesus says it is because of his sin. That's why he was in the condition he was. Now, we've got to be very careful here because the Bible does not always draw this one-to-one correlation between sickness and sin. In just a few chapters' time, in John 9, we will meet a blind man who has done absolutely nothing to cause his blindness, we're told. But in this man's case, that is the reason. And it also points to something big as well. The while there's not always this direct one-to-one correlation, it is true that the fact that there is sickness in this world, the fact that our world is depicted by this pool, is because of sin. When we reject our God, the very source of life, this chapter says, then these things are going to flow from that. Think about it. That there is poverty in this world is not because God is not on his throne, it is because we are sinful. That there is violent crime in this world is not because God is not on his throne, it is because we are sinful. That we get sick and die is because we are sinful, says the Bible. But here is the huge point of Jesus' encounter with this man. Take this in, look at verse 14 again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The Bible says there is something worse than sickness. There is something worse than even death and it lasts forever and it has to do with who Jesus is with why he will raise the dead. It has to do with the fact that he is judge. All of a sudden our courtroom looks very different, doesn't it? Now he is the judge and we are in the dock. And so we get his verdict in verses 24 to 30. Firstly, the verdict of who he is. He is the son of God. He does his father's will. He alone gives life which means that for you and I, our life is derived life. He's the source, not me. And it means he can give life even to those who are in their graves right now. And if he is the source of life and can raise even the dead, then being out of relationship with him is no small matter because he alone is judge. He alone has authority to decide where we spend eternity. And his verdict is final, universal and irreversible. Well, who needs to know this? Well, the Bible says in John 5, 28 and 29, everyone, everyone needs to know this. Do not be amazed at this, says Jesus, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Jesus will one day call out, get up, To the whole world he'll say that and we will rise up and stand before him. The one who spoke to the paralysed man is going to speak to everyone and it will be just as effective and with perfect justice he will judge. Can you imagine that day? Imagine it's five minutes from now and a voice from heaven says, get up and we will, the whole world will. Or imagine it's a hundred years from now and we are all in our graves and the voice comes and says, rise up. And we all will. No one will be forgotten. Not one. No one will be outside the range of his voice. All stand before him.
Jesus says to us all, you will be raised from the dead, guaranteed. What would you say if you met Jesus? Well, a better question is, what is the question he will ask us? Do you believe me? Do you believe me? It's possible to ignore that question in the present, isn't it? Because he says a day is coming when this will happen. It's not here yet. But you can't ignore it forever. And so to my mind it needs to be sorted out now. It needs to be sorted out in the present. What does he want us to do? I think uh, when we hear that God is going to be judged we think, well, obviously the first thing that I need to do is know him. I I need to be in relationship with him and, and that's going to mean I need to be good enough to be in relationship with him. So that's what I'm going to do in the present. I'm going to be good. He will be pleased with me. But that's not the Bible's answer, is it? Look at verse 24. God wants us to hear his word and believe him, trust him. Verse 24, when does eternal life start? The moment you hear and believe his word. Think about that for a moment. What it means is that right now over in the church centre there's a, there's a whole bunch of children hearing about Jesus. They are hearing about who he is and what he has done and they're being encouraged to put their trust in him. Now if a little boy or girl does that, right now, this day, eternal life has begun. That's an amazing thought. They have sorted out eternity already. And I know there are many here who have done that, but if you haven't, this is what we are meant to do in the present. The movie Gladiator, uh, one of my favourite movies, and uh, the, the main character, Maximus, says in the movie, one of his quotes is, what we do in life echoes in eternity. I think that's what we're getting at here. The person who in this life does not believe Jesus is a person who has no eternal life in front of them. They will be raised, but to judgement. But the person who puts their faith in Jesus is a person who has no judgement in front of them, no condemnation. They will be raised and to eternal life. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that he is the king. That your great will is that all will honour him as king and we'll trust him and his word. Father, we thank you uh, and we celebrate that there are many here who have crossed from death to life, who have taken this wonderful gift of eternal life that your son offers. Father, we pray that we will all do that, all here present. We will do that and be able to stand before you with great confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.